This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Outsider by H.B. Lovecraft. It comes to us courtesy of Audio Realms and their collection, The Dark Worlds of H.P. Lovecraft. It's read by Wayne June, and we'll be discussing it after the audiobook finishes. The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft Read by Wayne June Unhappy is he to whom the memories of childhood bring only fear and sadness. Wretched is he who looks back upon lone hours in vast and dismal chambers with brown hangings and maddening rows of antique books, or upon awed watches in twilight groves of grotesque, gigantic, and vine-encumbered trees that silently wave twisted branches far aloft. Such a lot the gods gave to me, to me, the dazed, the disappointed, the barren, the broken. And yet I am strangely content and cling desperately to those sere memories when my mind momentarily threatens to reach beyond to the other. I know not where I was born, save that the castle was infinitely old and infinitely horrible, full of dark passages and having high ceilings where the eye could find only cobwebs and shadows. The stones in the crumbling corridor seemed always hideously damp, and there was an accursed smell everywhere as of the piled-up corpses of dead generations. It was never light, so that I used sometimes to light candles and gaze steadily at them for relief. Nor was there any sun outdoors, since the terrible trees grew high above the topmost accessible tower. There was one black tower which reached above the trees into the unknown outer sky, but that was partly ruined and could not be ascended save by a well-nigh impossible climb up the sheer wall, stone by stone. I must have lived years in this space, but I cannot measure the time. Beings must have cared for my needs, yet I cannot recall any person except myself, or anything alive but the noiseless rats and bats and spiders. I think that whoever nursed me must have been shockingly aged, since my first conception of a living person was that of somebody mockingly like myself, yet distorted, shriveled, and decaying like the castle. To me there was nothing grotesque in the bones and skeletons that strewed some of the stone crypts deep down among the foundations. I fantastically associated these things with everyday events, and thought them more natural than the colored pictures of living beings which I found in many of the moldy books. From such books I learned all that I know. No teacher urged or guided me, and I do not recall hearing any human voice in all those years, not even my own. For although I had read of speech, 
I had never thought to try to speak aloud. My aspect was a matter equally unthought of, for there were no mirrors in the castle, and I merely regarded myself by instinct as akin to the youthful figures I saw drawn and painted in the books. I felt conscious of youth because I remembered so little. Outside, across the putrid moat and under the dark, mute trees, I would often lie and dream for hours about what I had read in the books, and would longingly picture myself amidst gay crowds in the sunny world beyond the endless forests. Once I tried to escape from the forest, but as I went farther from the castle the shade grew denser and the air more filled with brooding fear, so that I ran frantically back lest I lose my way in a labyrinth of nighted silence. So through endless twilights I dreamed and waited, though I knew not what I waited for. Then in the shadowy solitude my longing for light grew so frantic that I could rest no more, and I lifted entreating hands to the single black ruined tower that reached above the forest into the unknown outer sky. And at last I resolved to scale that tower, fall though I might, since it were better to glimpse the sky and perish than to live without ever beholding day. In the dank twilight I climbed the worn and aged stone stairs till I reached the level where they ceased, and thereafter clung perilously to small footholds leading upward. Ghastly and terrible was that dead, stairless cylinder of rock, black, ruined, and deserted, and sinister with startled bats whose wings made no noise. But more ghastly and terrible still was the slowness of my progress, for climb as I might, the darkness overhead grew no thinner, and a new chill as of haunted and venerable mold assailed me. I shivered as I wondered why I did not reach the light, and would have looked down had I dared. I fancied that night had come suddenly upon me, and vainly groped with one free hand for a window embrasure that I might peer out and above and try to judge the height I had once attained. All at once, after an infinity of awesome, sightless crawling up that concave and desperate precipice, I felt my head touch a solid thing, and I knew I must have gained the roof, or at least some kind of floor. In the darkness I raised my free hand and tested the barrier, finding it stone and immovable. Then came a deadly circuit of the tower, clinging to whatever holds the slimy wall could give, till finally my testing hand found the barrier yielding, and I turned upward again, pushing the slab or door with my head as I used both hands in my fearful ascent. There was no light revealed above, and as my hands went higher I knew that my climb was for the nonce ended, since the slab was the trap-door of an aperture leading to a level stone surface of greater circumference than the lower tower, no doubt the floor of some lofty and capacious observation chamber. I crawled through carefully and tried to prevent the heavy slab from falling back into place, but failed in the latter attempt. As I lay exhausted on the stone floor, I heard the eerie echoes of its fall, 
hoped when necessary to pry it up again. Believing I was now at prodigious height, far above the accursed branches of the wood, I dragged myself up from the floor and fumbled about for windows, that I might look for the first time upon the sky and the moon and stars of which I had read. But on every hand I was disappointed, since all that I found were vast shelves of marble, bearing odious oblong boxes of disturbing size. More and more I reflected and wondered what hoary secrets might abide in this high apartment so many eons cut off from the castle below. Then, unexpectedly, my hands came upon a doorway where hung a portal of stone, rough with strange chiseling. Trying it, I found it locked, but with a supreme burst of strength I overcame all obstacles and dragged it open inward. As I did so, there came to me the purest ecstasy I have ever known, for shining tranquilly through an ornate grating of iron and down a short stone passageway of steps that ascended from the newly found doorway was the radiant full moon, which I had never before seen, save in dreams and in vague visions I dared not call memories. Fancying now that I had attained the very pinnacle of the castle, I commenced to rush up the few steps beyond the door. But the sudden veiling of the moon by a cloud caused me to stumble, and I felt my way more slowly in the dark. It was still very dark when I reached the grating, which I tried carefully and found unlocked, but which I did not open for fear of falling from the amazing height to which I had climbed. Then the moon came out. Most demoniacal of all shocks is that of the abysmally unexpected and grotesquely unbelievable. Nothing I had before undergone could compare in terror with what I now saw, with the bizarre marvels that sight implied. The sight itself was as simple as it was stupefying. For it was merely this. Instead of a dizzying prospect of treetops seen from a lofty eminence, there stretched around me on the level through the grating nothing less than the solid ground, decked and diversified by marble slabs and columns and overshadowed by an ancient stone church whose ruined spire gleamed spectrally in the moonlight. Half unconscious, I opened the grating and staggered out upon the white gravel path that stretched away in two directions. My mind, stunned and chaotic as it was, still held the frantic craving for light, and not even the fantastic wonder which had happened could stay my course. I neither knew nor cared whether my experience was insanity, dreaming, or magic but was determined to gaze upon brilliance and gaiety at any cost. I knew not who I was, or what I was, or what my surroundings might be, though as I continued to stumble along I became conscious of a kind of fearsome, latent memory that made my progress not wholly fortuitous. I passed under an arch out of that region of slabs and columns and wandered through the open country, 
sometimes following the visible road, but sometimes leaving it curiously to tread across meadows where only occasional ruins bespoke the ancient presence of a forgotten road. Once I swam across a swift river where crumbling mossy masonry told of a bridge long vanished. Over two hours must have passed before I reached what seemed to be my goal, a venerable ivied castle in a thickly wooded park, maddeningly familiar, yet full of perplexing strangeness to me. I saw that the moat was filled in and that some of the well-known towers were demolished, whilst new wings existed to confuse the beholder. But what I observed with chief interest and delight were the open windows, gorgeously ablaze with light and sending forth sound of the gayest revelry. Advancing to one of these, I looked in and saw an oddly dressed company indeed, making merry and speaking brightly to one another. I had never seemingly heard human speech before and could guess only vaguely what was said. Some of the faces seemed to hold expressions that brought up incredibly remote recollections. Others were utterly alien. I now stepped through the low window into the brilliantly lighted room, stepping as I did so from my single bright moment of hope to my blackest convulsion of despair and realization. The nightmare was quick to come, for as I entered, there occurred immediately one of the most terrifying demonstrations I have ever conceived. Scarcely had I crossed the sill when there descended upon the whole company a sudden and unheralded fear of hideous intensity, distorting every face and evoking the most horrible screams from nearly every throat. Flight was universal, and in the clamor and panic several fell in a swoon and were dragged away by their madly fleeing companions. Many covered their eyes with their hands and plunged blindly and awkwardly in their race to escape, overturning furniture and stumbling against the walls before they managed to reach one of the many doors. The cries were shocking, and as I stood in the brilliant apartment alone and dazed, listening to their vanishing echoes, trembled at the thought of what might be lurking near me unseen. At a casual inspection the room seemed deserted, but when I moved towards one of the alcoves I thought I detected a presence there, a hint of motion beyond the golden arched doorway leading to another and somewhat similar room. As I approached the arch I began to perceive the presence more clearly, and then, with the first and last sound I ever uttered, a ghastly ululation that revolted me almost as poignantly as its noxious cause, I beheld in full frightful vividness the inconceivable, indescribable, and unmentionable monstrosity which had by its simple appearance changed a merry company to a herd of delirious fugitives. I cannot even hint what it was like, for it was a compound of all that is unclean, uncanny, unwelcome, abnormal, and detestable. It was the ghoulish shade of decay, antiquity, and dissolution, the putrid, dripping eidolon of unwholesome revelation. The awful bearing of that which the merciful earth should always hide. God knows it was not of this world.
or no longer of this world. Yet to my horror I saw in its eaten-away and bone-revealing outlines a leering, abhorrent travesty on the human shape, and in its moldy, disintegrating apparel an unspeakable quality that chilled me even more. I was almost paralyzed, but not too much so to make a feeble effort towards flight, a backward stumble which failed to break the spell in which the nameless, voiceless monster held me. My eyes, bewitched by the glassy orbs which stared loathsomely into them, refused to close, though they were mercifully blurred, and showed the terrible object but indistinctly after the first shock. I tried to raise my hand to shut out the sight, yet so stunned were my nerves that my arm could not fully obey my will. The attempt, however, was enough to disturb my balance, so that I had to stagger forward several steps to avoid falling. As I did so, I became suddenly and agonizingly aware of the nearness of the carrion thing, whose hideous hollow breathing I half-fancied I could hear. Nearly mad, I found myself yet able to throw out a hand to ward off the fetid apparition which pressed so close, when in one cataclysmic second of cosmic nightmarishness and hellish accident my fingers touched the rotting outstretched paw of the monster beneath the golden arch. I did not shriek, but all the fiendish ghouls that ride the night wind shrieked for me, as in that same second there crashed down upon my mind a single fleeting avalanche of soul-annihilating memory. I knew in that second all that had been. I remembered beyond the frightful castle and the trees, and recognized the altered edifice in which I now stood. I recognized most terrible of all, the unholy abomination that stood leering before me as I withdrew my sullied fingers from its own. But in the cosmos there is balm as well as bitterness, and that balm is Nepenthe. In the supreme horror of that second I forgot what had horrified me, and the burst of black memory vanished in a chaos of echoing images. In a dream I fled from that haunted and accursed pile, and ran swiftly and silently in the moonlight. When I returned to the churchyard place of marble and went down the steps, I found the stone trap-door immovable. But I was not sorry, for I had hated the antique castle and the trees. Now I ride with the mocking and friendly ghouls on the night wind, and play by day amongst the catacombs of Nefren Ka in the sealed and unknown valley of Hadoth by the Nile. I know that light is not for me save that of the moon over the rock tombs of Neb, nor any gaiety save the unnamed feasts of Nitocris beneath the great pyramid. Yet in my new wildness and freedom I almost welcome the bitterness of alienage. For although Nepenthe has calmed me, I know always that I am an outsider, a stranger in this century and among those who are still men. This I have known ever since I stretched out my fingers to the abomination within that great gilded frame, stretched out my fingers and touched a cold and unyielding surface of polished glass. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, this is Julie from 19 Nocturne Boulevard.
this is Fred Godsmark from Audio Realms. And we're here talking about The Outsider by H.P. Lovecraft, a story that Fred has given us permission to podcast, uh, read by Wayne June, who I think is the greatest audiobook narrator of H.P. Lovecraft stories ever. Uh, and what did, what, when did you guys first encounter this story? I just did it recently, and I, I love it. Well, I find uh, most people who really, really fall in love with the story encounter it during high school. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> because don't we all feel that way? Um, and I'm sure I was one of those. You know, it, it sort of blew my mind when you get to the end. Yeah. And... Uh, it's it's an interesting story. How about you? Where did you first? Do you oh, remember? With me, uh, I started reading um, Lovecraft. It, voraciously, I read horror when I was in my mid-teens. And I really didn't realize what I had read until I was in my 20s and I started picking up specific collections. And all of a sudden, it's like, wow, I read this before. Wow, I read this before. Um, and it turns out one of the very first stories I read was The Outsider. And that's and probably so, why you read so many horror stories, right? Oh, yeah. Um, H.P. Lovecraft, I read a lot of Algernon Blackwood as well. Um, He's great. And we did a collection of Algernon Blackwood, and when I got the collection sent to me, I was sitting on my back deck reading and thought, I've read these stories before. <laughs> and I thought they were all new. So it's the same thing again. You know, it's just uh, horror since I was a kid. And I'm ancient now, so, you know, it's a long time. <laughs> how, how, I'm curious, I think this is the kind of story that would stick with you pretty well. But uh, on subsequent readings and listenings to it, I, I see my first reading was not <laughs> very accurate. Like, uh, having reread it over the years, I assume everybody's done that. Uh, have you noticed the change? Because I certainly noticed the change just in the short space of like a month in rereading it. First time I read it, I'm like, oh my god! And then the second time, oh, darn, oh, now I see what, oh, okay, like that, you know? It's definitely got reread potential. <laughs> um, well, actually, there's, there's, I, I don't completely agree. It needs to be re-listened to. Yeah, I, I agree, <laughs> I agree, yeah. <laughs> I, I did reread sections of it, and I mostly re-listened to it, and it's got a you know the wonderful Lovecraft pattern of you can tell uh, the plotting sentence is going somewhere and then you start getting into the mood of the sentence and then oh the sentence is over but wait there's another wonderful long sentence coming up and it's you know each of them is a story in itself. I, one thing that struck me as really I, now I've also done a reading of this over on my site a straight reading as well as an adaptation. And I, I actually did the reading and posted it right before the adaptation came out so that people had no excuse for not being familiar with the story. Um, because my adaptation is very oblique. Yes, very. Um, <laughs> but the, I got a lot of people who actually came back to me and went, wow, the story seems very, very different when I think of the main character as female. Huh. Which is also funny because, I mean, it's it makes it clear by the end that it, it's probably a male character, even though it's not really very specific, actually. I don't think it is specific at all, now that I think about it. But I've found among my various friends who've, who it has struck chords with, particularly in high school, 
everyone tends to assume that the character is their own gender. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, we're all outsiders, right? Pretty um, much. With my, yeah. With my son, we were thinking of doing a, a, an amateur film about it, and we had thought about doing it as a female because we thought it would be huh. an interesting view because we would had be read it as a male. Now, um, I have to admit, I am actually changing and doing a different Lovecraft story where I'm adapting it to be a female, but not this one. I wonder. I wonder if you did ch- uh, how. So the way Julie did her audio drama, I'm going to ruin this for everybody, but uh, they can go Actually, one of the love five. Why, why, huh? don't I, why don't I go ahead and, and talk a little bit about that real quick? Yeah, uh, so it's called The View from Within. It's mm-hmm. not called The Outsider. Right, because I have a semi-series of, char- of stories within my overall anthology series that we've come to call them the Lovecraft Five. It's five sort of archetypical Lovecraft characters who come together to tell stories over dinner and cigars. And this is the fourth of the stories. Um, no, actually, it's the third, the, the fourth, the third one. And each of them has had their chance to tell a story. And this is Richard, the painter, telling a story. Gosh, I wonder what story he's from. <laughs> And um, and so it's he's telling it from the viewpoint of somebody who was at the party. Yeah, so he's telling the story of the outsider from someone who was at the party in the the lighted room yes. where our protagonist walks in. And uh, so it's 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 very it doesn't have any of the internal stuff of no. the original story because that doesn't really translate to dialogue or storytelling no matter what it'd be very hard to do as an audio drama if you didn't change the way it's told because it's one guy talking yeah it would just be an audiobook no matter (laughs) yeah exactly so um but so that's okay it was just an audiobook you know (laughs) it is it is but yeah it was it was one of those things where it seemed like such an interesting idea to try and see if I could tell just enough of the story so that the audience could still figure out what story it was while still keeping now, it the- I don't think I would have got it. I, I mean, it, it, the way you, you have it explained, it all fits. But you'd have to be like Hercule Poirot or C. Auguste Dupin or Sherlock Holmes <laughs> to take those facts and the and the story in mind and figure out uh, it. I think. But uh, if if you're primed like I was, I, I, Julie says, "Hey, I've got an adaptation of that, you know." And I said, "Oh, really? I don't see it on your list. It's not called that. It's called The View from Within." And when, uh, listening it, listening to it after listening to the outsider i can see aha i see what you did there <laughs> and it 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 is a it's a it made me think about the story in a different way because when i i read the outsider initially i didn't see all the clues that are hidden in the not hidden that are plainly said in the beginning of the story you know uh i was raised amongst corpses he says, basically, there's a whole bunch of dead bodies around, and it didn't bother me in the least. In fact, it seemed quite normal to me. Um, <laughs> and, well, later on, uh, it makes perfect, perfect sense that that was there. Uh, reading it the second time, it makes, uh, <laughs> makes it's much more obvious. But 
uh, I think your your interpretation, you know, sort of uh, trying to figure out whether he's a ghost or he's a corpse or whatever. I mean, there there's some other levels to it that uh, yours doesn't get at. Um, the you know the he's talking about he's riding the winds with the other ghouls or something. Right. Well, and actually, I even hinted that where somebody jokingly says, "Oh, what? So he flew away?" Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, it is a zombie story, is it not? It's some sort of revenant. Okay. Walking corpse. I mean, a physical return, not just a ghost. Is it, or is it really somebody that has just disfigured and has been kept away? Wait. The way I heard it the final time before I we've done this podcast here is um, he is a walking corpse that needs love and he was rejected by this bunch of people who find him disgusting and so he has to go live with other ghouls uh, under pyramids and such and I was thinking no just embrace him he, yeah he's a little rotty but it's okay he's a person and he needs love. And it was like so such a sad story because it, you know, he, he's horrible looking and he, he finds his own face disgusting to to behold. And Just yet, like most teenagers. Exactly. I think that's why teenagers will love it. Or at least understand it. So, um... The other thing that I did with this, my adaptation, which was completely bizarre, is there's a new character in it, but who's not from Lovecraft, who is actually uh, an elderly Frenchman who used to live in the Rue Morgue. <laughs> I did a crossover with Poe. But anyway. It, it works. It works. But, um, yeah, this one, most of the, the Lovecraft 5 adaptations are very straightforward. This one happens to be unusual um because i wanted to do something with the outsider but i didn't there's no way to really adapt i don't see how you could yeah Yeah. Um, how how would you do it fred if you're going to do it as a film how would you how would you you can't have the same kind of revelation unless you do it all like over the shoulder guy pushing at a or lady pushing at a (laughs) an opening hatch you know and you just see a, a white glove on her hand or something well, it would mostly be over the shoulder. It would have to um, be, right? Until you get to the mirror. <laughs> well, exactly. And we were never going to quite show the mirror. That was, that was going to be the thing. Is it was going to, you know, what I brought up before was, is it really just a disfigured person? We wanted to leave that much of a question at the end. Yeah, ambiguity um, really, really is what makes things great, I think. If you, if you just... I think that's why, you know, you watch The Sixth Sense and it's like, it doesn't work the second time. Because there is no ambiguity. It's, oh, he's a ghost. You got it? Oh, okay, got it. Oh, good revelation. The but first the, time. <laughs> yeah, but uh, when they, at the end, they say, he's a ghost. You know, it's not like, um, there's some ambiguity there. In Outsider, if he's a ghost or if he's a zombie or if he's a disfigured person, it's, it's not made explicit. And that leaves that makes it much more interesting, I think. So yeah, I think it wonderful. Yeah, I, I'd I'd like to see uh, how how you could do what what you could do with that because it's also narrative, right? And he says I've, I'd never spoken a word before I made that one sound. Uh, so it'd have to well, be internal monologue, I guess. 
Well, yep. we had kicked around either using well, Wayne's soundtrack and doing it male, or having another, or a female do it and using a female, or almost making it like a silent film, um, where it was just showing the scenes and it would have you know subtitles, certain parts of it coming up. Uh, we we kicked around a few a, a few ways. It, my son was really getting into movies at the time, so we were we were really kind of getting creative, and he just loved the story himself. Ah, wonderful. It's it's one that gets adapted pretty often at the film festivals, and a lot of the times they go with uh, a, just a constant voiceover and then the visuals to attempt to to uh, go with it. Hmm. It, it's one that works actually very well that way. It's one of the more adaptable ones in some ways um, for video, for visuals. Especially I, I, for I us think, amateurs. <laughs> I, I think it, it ultimately is best done as an uh, audiobook, just because even, even the text on the page, you say, okay, uh, you know, we just finished talking about the temple, right? And in, in that story by Lovecraft... He's got the entire manuscript is uh, something that was found in the bottle in a bottle on the beach in Yucatan, right? Okay, but this guy says I've never spoken a word in my whole life. <laughs> um, uh, if if you're reading it on the page, that means somebody transcribed for him, or he got a typewriter. Maybe maybe he's a he's a zombie who can type, right? <laughs> How did this, this document? <laughs> How did Sorry. we get this document uh, into existence? If it's an audiobook, it, it, it's like it's in your head, right? Mm-hmm. And you're experiencing it, and you don't ask those questions, I don't think, as much. Yeah. Uh, a film, yeah, I, in, I, in the I same agree. way that a film does, right? You know, you don't say, how did this, these visions come to happen before my eyes? It's just, it's in your head, right? It, it, there's no question, there's no framing sequence that's needed or anything like that. Mm. Right, exactly. So, um, uh, this is in volume three of The Dark Worlds of H.P. Lovecraft, correct? Uh, I believe it's volume three. Pretty sure it's uh, volume three. Uh, yes, it is in volume three. Um, um, along with The Horror at Red Hook, Herbert West Reanimator, and The Statement of Randolph Carter. Wow, that's, that's a great collection. Um, <laughs> that's a strange collection. It's it's a collection. That's the whole I, idea. It's it's like just uh, the first is is like uh, a, it's a a collection of not you don't. It's the way I think you should approach Lovecraft. You don't read them in order like a publication or anything like that. You just read, and then you find another one. And you read that, and you find another one, and you read that because. There, there's no series, right? There's no uh, uh, development exactly. There's just uh, here's an idea he's working on. Here's oh, mm-hmm. that sounds good. Um, and I think that that his, you know, like horror at Red Hook is extremely different kind of Lovecraft than uh, The Outsider, and uh, Herbert West Reanimator is a comedy, right? <laughs> um, Especially so- the musical version. Is there a music question? Yes. Oh. Stage play. Ah. Well, that would be strange. Bizarre. Uh, I, yeah, I assume I've heard it's interesting. Is that, is that on Broadway or? I believe so. Wow. Or off Broadway, at least. I mean, it, it's <laughs> yeah. if it's anywhere near as good as Evil Dead the musical, it should be pretty fun. It's an Evil Dead musical. Oh my gosh, Evil Dead the musical is wonderful. 
Uh, okay. Well, okay. You don't like music, so no. <laughs> no, but also like just, uh, I think it's no longer scary as much as it's funny, right? But the Evil Dead was, I mean, the first movie. It really is more the second movie, so it is in the comedy anyway. I, I think it would be a shame to like like. I think Herbert West Reanimator is is comedic, but it's also scary. But if you did like a a humorous version of The Outsider, I think it'd be a it'd be shameful. Oh, of The Outsider? Yeah. No, I don't see that. But no, Herbert West works though. Uh, and I don't know. Evil Dead is is frightening, uh, and scary but i don't know i don't know if that would work but yeah no evil dead the evil dead 2 was a comedy i don't know um i want to ask you fred i don't know if we ever asked you this before but where did you find wayne june because i found him through you and i think he's like a treasure ebay he actually found me oh he found you interesting yeah we had been doing um we started, uh, you know, fiddling with audiobooks. I mean, that was the whole idea of starting the company, and this was, you know, eight years ago. And at the time, I was doing, um, I was starting with the original um, uh, Michael Moorcock, the first two mm. Michael Moorcock books. And I was working on another book um, called Blood Memories, uh, which is a vampire one, a real different kind of um, take on vampires. And then we were working on some short stories, and... I used to get people auditioning a lot, and you know, at that point in time, with us being a very small company, it's, you know, we really didn't pay much attention to anything. But you know, one had come through from Wayne, which I kind of just stuck aside on my desk. But then he phoned a couple times, and I listened to it. Him and I just actually, um, we just um, got on really well to begin with. He's a great and, guy. Yeah, and at the time, I was um, in the middle of um, doing a negotiation with Gene Simmons over doing the Lovecrafts. Wow, that that would and be weird. It it was really cool. He, he, Gene Simmons is a really nice guy. Um, you know, he he comes off a lot nicer than he does on television. Uh, <laughs> Everybody's but, yeah. nicer than they look on television. Exactly. So, television is but, sold by the butts. So Wayne and I got talking, and I was saying I couldn't put it together with Gene. It was just too big for the size of my company. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, that was still when the Lovecrafts were, nobody knew whether they were in public domain or not, and we had made an agreement with his estate. Um, anyway, so I'd said to Wayne, you know, I'd love to do it, and he said he'd love to do it. He said, so let me try one. Hmm. So he tried one. I didn't want to record anything outside of my studio um, because, we, you know, we wanted to make sure quality was good. And um, he did it, and he's about as anal with sound as I am, and, and it just worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's where we put out our first one, um, Dunwich Horror and Call of Cthulhu. And then we just were having a great time with it. So we just, we just continued on. Yeah. Um, I... And that's kind of how it went. And Wayne and I, and I have become friends over the years. He's one of the few outside voice people that I actually know in real life. I mean, mo- most people are on the telephone, but Wayne and I have, you know, met in a lot of places. I mean, You're both played... East Coast, right? Yeah. He's up in Connecticut, though. Oh. He was on tour with a band a lot, and they would travel down through here, so him and I would always meet up somewhere and, you know, spend spend a day or an evening together and and everything else. And um, it, like I said, we just got to know each other as friends. We Even when we don't have projects, we still uh, we, we, we still talk every two or three weeks. Well, it's, it's rare that you can find somebody who's, uh, you know, who's got a the same sort of interests in 
in literature as you and who's also cool and uh yeah i really i really dig the guy yeah he was um, i don't know he was the drummer for johnny winter are you familiar with the blues guitarist johnny winter <laughs> I I know nothing about music, unfortunately. Yeah, well, he's a very well known, especially I, I grew up in the '70s, so you know it was very important when he grew up in the in the '70s. He was a very important blues artist, mm-hmm. but he also played in a wedding band at the same time. And with me living here in Raleigh, he he uh, after we'd known each other for a year or so, he says, "I'm playing in Richmond. Do you uh, do you, you want to come up? You can hear hear the band and everything else." Well, he's playing a wedding band as well, and that's all I thought he played, and I'm like kind of politely excused myself and everything, <laughs> and then I was down in Myrtle Beach um, about two months later, and he said, you know, we're playing in Myrtle Beach, do um, you want to come down there, and I'm going, gee, it's a long way to come for a wedding, he goes, no, I actually play drums in Johnny Winter's band, and I said, really, and he says, yeah, do you think I was inviting you to Richmond to <laughs> listen to a wedding band? Well, <laughs> he just had the biggest laugh over that. <laughs> You get to um, you get invited to the wedding, have a slice of cake. <laughs> but anyways, no, and he he's done a couple other projects for us. He's done Brian Keane's Ghoul, which was just released on the right. Killer Channel. Yeah, um, I'm very interested. I don't in that. know if you've heard it. He did a phenomenal job. No, I've never re- read a Brian Keane in my life, but I, I've heard of him, and he's a horror dude, right? He did he, Castaways. Yeah, he did Castaways. We we've done that as well. Um, right. Um, but actually, if you go to AudioRealms.com, we're just launching the new site, but it's just the beta page is up there right now, but we actually did a trailer for Ghoul. Oh, and actually, cool. you could have a listen to it. There's about a two-minute clip of Wayne reading it. Oh, awesome. Um, I mean, uh, and because you it's reviews, a very ghoulish... Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, Ghoul is uh, is exactly, uh, I think, the word that's used in The Outsider. So <laughs> he did his, uh, if, if you like this uh, Outsider... I think you'll probably like Ghoul because I hear I hear good things about Brian Keane. He's he's a current writer and he's not uh, from the 1920s. But <laughs> how many how many um, of his books have you got? You've got um, Castaways and okay, I, I've got um, um, let's see uh, the Rising, which is a zombie, and then City of the Dead, which is sequel to it. Um, I've got Castaways. Um, I've got Ghoul. Um, we just released Darkness on the Edge of Town. It just went up about two weeks ago. It, it's a fantastic book. It's kind of, it, it's it's a horror, but it's more like the horror of what the world does with each other one, huh. if there's a disaster. And it, it, it's really cool. And then we're releasing one called Gathering of Crows next week. Wow. Um, which is kind of based on the Lost Colony um, down here in North Carolina, actually. Oh, um, Roanoke? Roanoke? Uh, Roanoke, yeah. Sorry, I, I, I keep wanting to call it Croaton because that's uh, yeah. I mean, oh, that, no, that's the word. That's the first that. thing that comes to mind. Yes. Oh, that'd be interesting. Yeah, I, I mean, it's a mystery, right? And I don't think there is a r- official explanation uh, that we all subscribe to. So no, uh, and there, there's not. Um, but he, there, um, Brian covers it in the book, and it's not. He's he's not. Um, He's not. It's not a story about that, but uh, what's going on in his book is related to it. So he actually talks a little bit about the history in, in, in his book, what they feel the explanation is for it, hmm. um, which is really cool. And, it, and it's very much tied to what it is. And um, Brian's um, writing is very easy to read. Oh. Um, it, it flows really well. 
Um, it's not pompous like some writers get. It's just it's just right there. It gets right to your heart. Uh, Sounds when good. When you read, like, you can relate to it. Um, I need I need to send you more stuff for reviews so I can put a Brian Keene collection together. Absolutely, well. you know, and we've got a new reviewer who I'll give you the address for. She's uh, actually in South Carolina, so nice and close. Um, and she okay. she is she's an incredibly uh, prolific reader. So uh, if if uh, no one else will do it, I'm sure she will because she's she's incredibly fast reader. I don't know how she does it. <laughs> it must, uh, you know, you can cut out television, but once you do that, uh, what else is there to cut out? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm not a real television person, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, gotcha. You know, I, I've got the 50-inch TV and, and direct TV and, you know, 300 channels, and I watch about two hours worth of TV a week, so. Yeah. Well, back to the outsider, I suppose. <laughs> no, no, we all get to. You know, it's, it's, it's. You should hear us get off on tangents sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it, um, it's part of our business plan here, getting off on tangents. Oh, absolutely. Well, that's how you, that's how you find new things. Exactly. <laughs> absolutely. Everything's um, connected if you look hard enough, and looking hard enough is just a matter of, you know, educating and. And seeing what's out there, because uh, uh, you know, whenever I'm reading two different books, I I always seem to find some connection between the two uh, that I wouldn't have seen 20 years ago because I just didn't know those connections. So, uh, well, how about how about uh, you know, Lovecraft has a tendency to have long, long staircases. In the Outsider, we're going up, but in say the Rats in the Walls, we're going down. Speaking of odd conditions. Yeah, yeah, you know, there there are a lot of things that I would like to see how they are visualized because I think a lot of what is going on in the outsider is metaphorical. Like uh, he says, I was I must have been raised up uh, in my place and he's surrounded by books, and I was thinking, are those real books? Because if he's in a tomb, or is it a castle that is a tomb, or is it a like how how is it? Is he living in a castle, or is his castle really underground and it's a mausoleum? Or what? What is the, what is this exactly? Are those really books, or is he just like because he, he doesn't have human words anymore? <laughs> Are they like just? Uh, That's what makes that story perfect. Is because we don't know. Yeah, it's so it's so uh, open to interpretation, and uh, I think there's something about the ambiguity that's deliberately left in. To writing, especially if you read some of Lovecraft's, you know, dream-based uh, stories like like the Crawling Chaos or uh, the one that we're going to be doing in September, um, uh, the Evil Clergyman, sometimes called the Wicked Clergyman. Uh, that one's actually a dream that he wrote down in a letter. If you read it and you're trying to figure out what's going on, he doesn't know what's going on. He just wrote down what he what happened in the dream. But it makes makes for like you're trying to interpret what little is there and it engages you way more than just um my finger was chopped off and there was lots of blood (laughs) it's it's not the lots of blood that scares me it's the what do you mean by that that your proboscis was injured by in a horrible manner The thing is, is I, I think, anyways, is the best writing for horror, the, the absolute best stories, because horror doesn't 
move me like it used to because it's all been done. But mm-hmm. it's when they leave a question and they leave your imagination messing you up rather than their words. I yeah. think is the that's yeah. the that's the, the engagement with the story. imagination. Absolutely, well, it's part of the problem yeah. with a lot of stuff nowadays. Is they feel they have to explain everything. They have to tell you everything because otherwise you'll be annoyed. Because <laughs> most audiences nowadays don't want to have to imagine anything. And we all know what a zombie is, and we all know what a revenant is, and we all, uh, you know, we all picture them. So it's not, you know, it's not like with the with the outsider where we're not quite sure. So everybody's picturing their mind in their mind what they think it should be, mm-hmm. or what they think it is. And it's it, it, our society doesn't do that anymore. I mean, we've had everything thrown in our face. So it's, it's all the same. Um, another author I'd love to talk about that does the same thing sometime, uh, who's a lot more recent and a lot less prolific, is T.E.D. Klein. No, I've not heard of him or her. Uh, he's done some really amazing short stories. He's he's often clumped with the Lovecraftians um, because of a couple of his stories are apparently considered to be right in the genre. But um, he does some really good you know, he he leads you right up to the last minute when you know something's about to happen, and you're pretty sure you know what it is, but then the story ends, and you're left going, Gah! Uh, Joshi, uh, S.T. Joshi says, uh, uh, in, the close, in close to 25 years of writing, Klein has only two books and a handful of scattered tales to his credit, and yet his achievement towers gigantically over that of more prolific contemporaries. Absolutely. Hmm. I, I sounds like I got to read some of this guy's books. I was going to say, Jesse, you and I are not in the. We're not in the know. <laughs> no. Oh. I. I. I but I you am... know what? I love it when I'm not in the know because that means there's more to explore. I. I and, don't want to weep because I've conquered the world. You know. I'm just one of those people who the thing, few things I do know about, I know a lot about, and then I totally ignore everything else. <laughs> and well, it's you know I, I. I'm apparently an extremely good audio engineer for my show, and yet I just taught myself this stuff. I have no idea how it works. People are like, well, what is the high-pass filter? I'm like, it makes the low notes go away. <laughs> and they're yeah. like, no, no, but how does it work? Self-taught. Hit it with a stick. <laughs> uh, how, how did you get into the audio business, Fred? Oh, wow. That's a long story, but I'll I'll, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. I played in a band from when I was in my mid-teens, and just around the end of high school, we decided to, um, uh, we we got offered a a four-track recorder to play with, so we did some recording, and that was fun. That's always fun, yeah. Yeah, and and, so we made, and I actually still have the tapes floating around from it. But then kind of life went on for a while, and I kept playing and, and everything else. And then I stopped for a while, um, and I decided I was going to start playing again. So I wanted to learn how to, uh, I wanted to learn how to play guitar because I was a bass player. So I went and bought one of those little tiny recorders and started um, you know, recording bass tracks with some drums in it so I could play guitar to it. And all of a sudden, I played with it. I had a lot of fun. And then my... Uh, my insurance agent said to me, you've got some recording equipment. Can you make one of those commercials that they play on on the telephone when they go on hold? Huh. And I'm like, sure, I could do that. So I had a lot of fun doing it just because you know, it was hilarious. And all of a sudden, people started calling me. Huh. Um, 
And within a year, I actually had a, a full studio, an eight-track studio built. Uh, I made a fair amount of money at it. And I just started learning, um, you know, with, uh, from uh, emailing a lot of people. Um, a lot of the really um, good um, engineers from the, from the era, you know, in the 80s um, and such, were, um, they were really helpful if you wrote to them or emailed them, you know, once the email became more popular. Um, and, and they were good, and I learned so much from it. Um, and it just started from there. And then soon I was doing movie soundtracks. And I was up in Canada, and then I moved down here and um, decided to uh, produce audiobooks. I, I, you, must, you must have loved audiobooks before you started producing them, though. I'm such an amateur by comparison. <laughs> you, are, you, are an, you are exactly what an amateur is, Julie. Because you don't do it for money, you do it for love. You've got a day job. You, I, I don't know where you find the time to do all the things that you do. Uh, but I, I think that, no sleep. Cassidy. Yeah, deal with the devil or something like that. Well, that's what you have to do. But you know, my my first reverb unit in my studio was my son's diaper pail with a microphone. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I hope you so, cleaned it. As a matter of fact, I did. Okay. <laughs> but, Otherwise, that sound would be dirty, dirty sound. But that's how you learn. I mean, because I wanted to create something, so how do you create it? And, you know, I read an article on using, you know, uh, actually a, um, hanging a microphone just above the water on a toilet. Um, for An article in that, and you get a little bit of an echo, and, and, and that's how you learn. But the audiobooks from before, I don't remember audiobooks, but what I do remember, and again, there were some Lovecraft stories. When I was um, probably a preteen, my dad had um, LPs. Oh, yeah. They had ghost stories on them. Yeah, the and Boris Karloff sort of... Uh, come and go ye before. Come and go thee if you will not go before. Sorry, Vincent Price did one. Yes. Yeah, a bunch <laughs> of those that are great from like Cademon and uh, other... <laughs> help. Uh, oh, yeah, they have to be short stories usually to fit on there. Oh, they were. They were great. Um, and, and there were some Lovecraft stories on there, which at the time I didn't know what oh. they were. I just knew they were scary stories. And the ducky and, versions. So that always kind of hung in the back of my mind. I mean, um, uh, McCam- uh, 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 David McCallum versions. Yeah, um, I've seen I've seen those on eBay. Yeah, I, I don't think no. That was before David McCallum was doing them. I think I remember one of the guys that did it, it was doing things, and this is the era that it came out of, and his stuff was mostly comedy, but it was like Stanley Holloway. Mm. Um. And he would do these stories, and some of them got a little scary, but I mean, they, they, these were guys from a long time ago. Um, but, you know, this was, you know, this was in the, well, in the 60s. Um, mm-hmm. Not that I really want to age myself. But <laughs> Nobody wants to age, but we got, all got to do it. <laughs> yeah. we, we all have to, yes. Unfortunately. Uh, I actually just had a physical, and the um, the doctor told me that I'm, I'm 53, and the doctor told me that I was as healthy as somebody in their late 30s, but I was about as mature as somebody in their mid 20s. So. <laughs> That's what the doctor said. <laughs> That's what the doctor told me. <laughs> I'm kind of comfortable with it. <laughs> mm. um, I just, I guess, I get it right, right down in there with my kids. <laughs> I don't just, just think that hopefully maturity and wisdom are not one to one relationship, <laughs> and then we'll be good. I, yeah, I'm a firm uh, believer that you can grow up without ever. We can go get old without ever growing up. 
I think so. I think, and that's why we can all do this industry. Because yeah. I think that's what makes it partly that way. Because we don't have to take our we we can take our craft seriously, but we don't have to take ourselves too seriously. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that's just what makes. It, I, I love coming to work. That's pretty much why I work seven days a week. But yeah. I, I just love coming to my studio and and you know and doing all the things that I need to do. I hate paperwork. That's why I have a business partner. But, uh, <laughs> no, but you know, I walk around in bare feet. You know. Um, <laughs> Um, and it's just it's just fun here, um, you know. Everybody that comes here loves loves working here. So, and do, you ever, do you ever get past the trees on the outside and and into someone else's home and go through the window and and then they see you and they say, "Hey, come on in," <laughs> because well, like... <laughs> <laughs> because that's what the outsider would do if he had a family, right? <laughs> Well, it's funny, the woods out back of my house is where we wanted to do where he was traveling, or she was traveling. Um, I, and I wanted to film do it in winter. Even if it's just, you know, uh, YouTube. I, I, YouTube's where everybody's doing it now, and there's amazing stuff to be found there. And if you uh, type in we were going to do. there's thousands of them. It's incredible. Oh, yeah. No, it's, it, it is. It's absolutely incredible. I mean, we were doing it just for the sake of, fun. I mean, my mm. son wasn't looking at it as a career. I certainly wasn't looking at it as a, as a career. We just thought it would be a lot of fun to do it. Um, and we went out and took some shots. You know, down here, we're in North Carolina, and we don't have... You know, we, lo- we have seasons, so we lose the leaves, but we don't really get snow. So we were going to film in the woods below the house with no leaves. Mm-hmm. I just had it kind of creepy as you're going through, and that's where a lot of the story was going to happen, and just mm-hmm. this you know, the sounds of the crackling branches, if we, if we were going to have sound in it and everything else. Um, that, that's kind of where we thought we were going to go with it. Of but, course. You know, everybody's got their like, own interpretation. Yeah. Well, if you, if you decide you like my reading, I can always do that for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you do, actually, if you want to send some samples, just get my email from, from Jesse. Um, we're always looking for voice people. Um, I have yeah, she, she's incredible. She she did a, a, a we we just talked about the temple, uh, and she played one of the uh, characters in the audio drama of that, uh, who's a German man. And I forgot that that was Julie while I was listening to it. I was like, that's a German man, <laughs> and it's it's no, it's it's just Julie. Well, yes, we've got I a play. project going on, so um, we've got a lot of horror coming up. We do, we're doing paranormal romances here now. Oh boy! Um, I, I have more Chick titles porn. than I know to do with. It, well, it's funny we've got our side project going on with that too, but that's not that doesn't belong in this show. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I do. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of my show, but they're fully dramatized uh, audio dramas that I write the scripts from it was a lot of most of them are original but a lot of them are adaptations and i've done a lot of lovecraft my dunwich horror last halloween was acknowledged by many to be a masterwork I, have i heard that one i don't know have you heard know. it i'm gonna find out it's a big four-parter oh no i haven't heard that yet i i have the comic book and i was gonna read that when i got all the comic books as well oh. um but it's been a while since i read the dunwich horror so i think that might be Oh, my, it was I, done a while ago. Uh, yeah. The old one with, with um, uh, Dean Stockwell. Dean Stockwell. Oh. Yes. Uh, the new one has Dean Stockwell also, except he's playing Armitage. There's a new one? Yeah. 
Well, there's a Sci-Fi Channel one. Oh no. Yeah, it was better than I thought because I was good, but I only have so my standards for what I feel are coming out of Sci-Fi are only so good. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't yeah. as good as the original. <laughs> oh, you, seriously, try my. Oh yeah, I'm um, looking at the ratings. It's three point nine on IMDb that's, for the that's new one. Generous. Um, it's uh, there's so many things that I feel they do wrong, and I think a lot of people do wrong with that particular story but that's not what we're discussing here but my biggest problem is everybody makes uh, Lavinia crazy and she's not she's not crazy and I will argue anybody on that but that's me she was being driven crazy (laughs) no she wasn't being driven crazy she was never driven crazy in the original story sorry Okay. let's hear the argument Julie (laughs) The argument is people say, ooh, you know, having a baby off an elder god made her crazy. I'm like, she was around for 12 years raising her child after that, and she wasn't crazy. No, she was just treated badly by the sound yeah. of it. I mean, that's what it sounded like to me. Exactly. That's she's what I, not, well, that's not, what I mean. They were trying to drive her crazy or driving her crazy because of the way they treated her. But no, mm, I, don't think I think they just her. disregarded her as anything but an object, but that's me. But yeah, I, I made a very strong the mother thing. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> very. I've gotten a lot of very, very strong compliments on what I did with Lavinia in my story. I'm gonna look. I'm gonna. I'm gonna look that one up and listen to it because I, it's, it's been too long since I read the Don Machor. To me, Lovecraft, of course, just glosses over all the issues that might have anything to do with the female of the species. So uh, he didn't know a lot about it. So. Uh, yeah, he was just scared. Anything he was afraid of didn't appear much in his stories, right. or was you know. But no, it's um, it's just like what I'm planning to do with Innsmouth eventually. It's like his his horror is, oh no, oh no, I discovered I'm related to fishmen. It's like, dude, we had to marry them. <laughs> you can just go over there and whine in the corner. <laughs> that should be interesting because I've heard one adaptation of that as an audio drama, and it. It has a lot of action for. Uh, there's a whole chase sequence in there. Innsmouth? I oh, think. Yeah. 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 No, no, it does. It's um, like a rooftop escape, and yeah, it jumps out the window, and there's fishmen looking at him. And I mean, I'm not sure how much danger he's in, but he thinks he's in a lot of. Oh no, I think they came to the house to get him or something. So I think I think the one you're talking about um, is the uh, probably oh I can't remember the shadow name. over Innsmouth. Well, that yeah, that's the story title, but um, it I, I think I know the one you're talking about. Well, there's the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society. Version. Yes, that's the one. Okay, I heard because the there's also a shorter version done at, and I can't remember what the group is, and off the top of my head, and it's going to drive me crazy till I find out. That was very good, also, and I mean it was abridged more, and um, I'm going a different direction because I do that. Uh, it's okay, uh, Fred. I, uh, before we wrap up, I, I wanted to ask you: you're you're on selling on Audible. Uh, you you sell uh, to the other one, Overdrive through Overdrive as well. Um, how else can uh, people get your stuff? Okay. Uh, well, Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Okay. Uh, Amazon, Audible are uh, the Amazon. You can get CDs, and it also gives you to straight to Audible, right? Right. Uh, our older stuff is all available on CD. A lot of our newer stuff is not available on CD. It's only CD is the old school. Yeah. Is it available yeah, on uh, but all, all of our Lovecraft 
Pardon me? Sorry, CDs are going the way of eight tracks. I was just yeah. They are that CDs are like MP3 CDs are even uh, only reason I would have those is just to rip it straight to my iPod. But yeah, it's it's incredibly digital now. So you're yeah. you're not doing a lot of uh, hard hard copy releases anymore. We're we're going back with some um, some of our new stuff will come out again because there's things like the uh, the Lovecraft um, people like hard copies of that. Oh, it's great um, to give a gift though. That's the that's the one thing, right? You can't give a gift. Uh, you know, here are some digital files. That's not a Christmas tree present. Exactly, <laughs> and then we've got um, yeah, all of our Robert E. Howard um, is available on hard copy. Our Brian Keynes. Um, yeah, we did Lair of the White Worm. Um, that's yeah. available. We've got some Jack Ketchum um, available as hard copy, too. Um, when our site relaunches, um, because it's just we've got the beta version of the page up, when it, when it relaunches over the next week or so, um, there'll be a fair amount of stuff that's available hard copy from there. All right, um, we'll link well. to that. What's, what's your best seller? I, I, I would think it would be uh, uh, the Lovecraft, but uh, that's just... That's just my personal uh, uh, take on it. Lovecraft Volume 1 has been our bestseller for six years. Wow. Um, it is still always at the top of our... The occasional month, it's not if we do a big release, like when we released Brian Keene's Ghoul, sure. it overshadowed it, but not by much. And, um, you know, I've been reading the, the reviews of, of um, anything that Wayne reads and... Everybody, you know, it doesn't matter what book it is. They always say how great the narrator is. I think I think we've got to do everything we can to keep keep him uh, and his voice going, even if he's a ghoul and we have to, you know, uh, get Herbert West reanimator. Uh, well, I, I don't know why I'm trying to kill him off here, but I, I say he's a, he's a treasure, and we got to keep he's him going. He's only a couple years older than me. He's not going anywhere. <laughs> All right, good. <laughs> um, I'm not trying no, to kill him I, off, I could, really. If I could have him working full-time for me, I would. Yeah. Um, and I'm working on keeping him busy now, trying to schedule him in to do, you know, like one a month for me, because I've got some just phenomenal horror coming up. And with him with the right thing, he he just does absolute perfect. Cool. Um, so if you send me, actually, if you if you think of it, send me an email um, later and remind me, and I'll send you a copy of Ghoul and, and some of the Brian awesome. King stuff. But I also see like, you've got a, a Clark Ashton Smith. Now I've not read a single thing by Clark Ashton Smith, but um, I hear me, I hear people who like him like Lovecraft. So that's called the well, Double Shadow. Is that is that? Uh, yep. Oh, sorry, it's um, it, it's available on hard copy. It's there. It it turned out really really well. Um, it's all shorts. Um, and actually, uh, you should remind me, and I'll also send you Algernon Blackwood, um, because right. even Lovecraft said Algernon Blackwood was the master at painting a horror backdrop. I'm just starting to get into him as well. We've, we've done maybe one or two stories. Um, and, and also, um, Clark Ashton Smith was a friend of Lovecraft's, which is one of the reasons yeah. you've probably heard him so Yeah, yeah. Because, well, no, yeah. Lovecraft even made jokes on him in his stories. Wow. In in the I think Actually, it's the Whisper in Darkness he mentions the the Atlantean priest Clarkash Ton, <laughs> just like he mentions in um, oh gosh one of the other books he mentions the 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 book the Comte de Gu this uh, some book by the Comte Derlet which is August Derleth. Ah 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 ah! Inside jokes there. Uh, oh yes. Um, in our second uh, Robert E. Howard actual People of the Dark. 
um, one of the stories in there, and I'm trying to remember the one that is off the top of my head, was written by Clark Ashton Smith, H.P. Lovecraft, and Robert E. Howard. They did a round wow. on it. Wow. And That's Wayne has read that one. Like, cool. that he read that one for us on that collect. I want to say it's The Haunter of the Ring, but don't quote me on that. I don't want to get 100 emails saying I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> I'm saying I might not have the right story. <laughs> but I think it's Haunter of the Ring. Um, but it was done as a round robin between the three of them. And it's a very cool story. Cool. Oh, yeah, it is. That's it. Uh, I'm looking at it. Wow. Actually, your news, your news site isn't fully linked, but I, I can find things through uh, Google. So, yeah. There's, right. uh, As a matter of fact, while we were sitting here, my text came up from the guy who's doing my website and said, the search engine's working now. So uh, yeah. This week, it's, it's, it's going as we do it because we, we, we went with a whole new look because we were doing other projects as well, so we didn't want to make it quite as dark. And that's why, actually, we have darkrealmsaudio.com now, uh, where we're doing our horror from. Oh, and you've got a Twitter uh, account, and uh, I don't know how it happened, but I became addicted to Twitter. So I'll, I'll if you if you I'm guys are tweeting that. stuff, um, I'll you'll see me retweeting it because I think I think you're doing great stuff. Yeah, you know, I appreciate it. I'm just learning the whole Twitter thing. You know, I <laughs> I get out there and I'll do a couple, and then I'll forget about it for a day or so, and then I'll I'll do you know six in a day and. Um, you know, I see people just doing inane things. They're, they're oh, tweeting that. Just unsubscribe anybody who it. tells you about their lunch. It's not important. I don't want to know what, what you had for lunch. I want to know what you're reading. I want to know uh, uh, some interesting concept you came up with that you can give me in 140 characters or so. I, I stick exactly. to show announcements and nothing else for my Twitter New shows out. New something up on the website. It, it, if if you if you, I I can't see how you could do it any other way, Julie. You hold down a full time job. Uh, you've got a cat, and I know you say the cat doesn't take much time, uh, but That's you put out more audio than almost anybody I know, and you do it all by yourself. It's incredible. Well, this summer has been just a summer from heck as far as that goes, because I've had. Computer crashes and other things and blah, blah, blah. And now I'm just like, I'm just trying to make it through the rest of the summer. But this summer has also been taken up with my new show, which isn't Lovecraftian at all. But it's hour-long episodes. And so they take so much time to make. You wouldn't think an hour-long episode would take more than the time it takes to make two half-hour episodes. But guess what? It does. Guessing about 22 hours per hour. Uh, no, the rule of thumb that we do for audio drama is a minute per hour, an hour per minute. Uh, 60 hours? Yeah. Oh, my God. From from writing, conception, you know, recording, putting the voices together, putting in the sound effects, cleaning everything, you know. Hmm. Yeah. Much, much, much time. Reasonable. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm glad I'm just a consumer of this stuff because uh, I don't I don't think I'd have the uh, gumption for either of your guys' jobs. Well, you know, <laughs> I learned to produce because I have to. Because if you are a writer and you don't produce, then you're always at the mercy of the producers. I mean, producer in the sense of the people who do the sound editing. Right. Because otherwise you're yeah, just sitting there whining the at them until they get it done. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, don't pick on the producers. <laughs> no, it's just we that have enough there's yeah, so much to do that that is the group of that is the the in in audio in the audio drama circles 
the people most likely to drop out in the middle of a project are the producers simply because they're the ones doing, you know, 20 times the work of everyone else. Yeah, they're driven crazy. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, yeah. It's we very actually just, um, we're opening our third studio um, right now. Wow. Um, the equipment will be here. We've just actually got the room room prepared. So we've got one, one full recording studio and two, um, two editing suites now. So... Oh. It's, uh, yeah, I, I understand keeping busy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I record in my living room and work on a laptop. You know what? I started recording in my living room. As a matter of fact, one of the, uh, one of the first things that w- we got when we were first getting into this business, I used to have my recording set up in my breakfast nook, and then I had a booth that we would set up in my living room. And I had got given... Um, a copy of Dracula, which was it was only an 80-minute one, and it was uh, it was on tape, and I liked it. I played it all the time. The guy who read it, um, Donald Pickering, did the reading, and he still I, he just died a couple of years ago, but I still say he's one of the best audio narrators there ever was. I just love his work. He'd been, doc- he'd been on Doctor Who and a couple other things. You'd probably recognize him if you saw him. But anyways, we um, I decided I was going to switch it over to a CD. Um, because I wanted to be able to just keep it because the tape was getting worn mm-hmm. out. So I put, it in, I, I put it in, I took all the tape hiss out and everything else, and while I was taking the tape hiss out, all of a sudden I started hearing people talking in the background and a bunch <laughs> of other things. Yeah. And my business partner called me, and he said, are you converting that over? And I said, yeah. And I said, but you know what? Most of that hiss was there on purpose. This guy must have recorded it in his living room. Mm. And my partner started laughing his head off because I sounded so disgusted. <laughs> and, and That's we why I art. put music in. Well, Julie, uh, but you, you did a great... Uh, Julie recorded a copy of um, a Jack London story for me. Uh, and... You, there was no background noise in that one. That was perfect. So See, that's now. A lot of the Lovecraft stuff that I did as recordings, I did when I was learning how to edit. So the, wow. the music is very much compensating right there. I don't think I don't think you want to add hiss to... Just, just, uh, we have the technology now to remove uh, noise. Actually, Pretty you need quickly. to put a little bit of hiss in. You do have to put a little bit. Really? Everyone I do has got it. Yeah, that, it levels out the silence. You almost don't know it's there. You well, know, actually, you pretty much don't know it's there, but um, it can't be sterile. If you listen to the silence gaps in our stuff, it's not sterile in, in any of the bigger studios. And it's because they, they're going to run you know, a, a, some sort of noise in the background or just an ambient room tone. Yeah, room tone kind of. Room tone, yeah, okay. But not, not uh, don't add them. Yeah, don't add that. <laughs> <laughs> the only time I add that is if one of my actors' recordings can't be completely cleaned, and I have to do it to cover up their hiss. And the, the funny thing is you can actually do it so it's almost imperceptible, because what people are going to hear is the cutting in and out around the lines more than they're going to hear a background noise that the, the ear will sort out. Yeah, right, and that, that's exactly why, is you put the noise in so it takes away from everything else. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's the it's so. the temperature of the room. It's the it's the the color of the of the recording. It's, it's the color I of the wallpaper. It's uh, yellow, I believe. <laughs> that is another <laughs> no, I've podcast. Done, I've done that one too. Oh, damn! Um, of course you have. I, everybody's done that one. Yeah, but mine <laughs> kicks ass. All right, Julie. We'll see. I'll check it out. No, you won't. Cause yeah. It's got music in it. Oh, terrible! Don't I... overlay. 
Don't overlay. Just let I it lie. I do it lie. for myself. I like it. All right. You do it for yourself, then. Uh, I, I really appreciate you coming on, Fred. And I thank you, Julie. The same. It's my um, pleasure. And I thank you again for the recording. I know everybody's going to love it. All right. And just remember www.audiorealms.com. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.